As one of my favorite professors says, all politics, like good seafood, is local. Ground Level is an exploration of the power and importance of local government through interviews with various public officials, political junkies, and civic-minded Americans. I hope Ground Level inspires and educates fellow Democrats that we cannot ignore state and local government if we want to build and sustain political power for generations to come. Welcome to Ground Level. Welcome back to Ground Level. I'm Henry Schultz, your host. And today's guest is Wilfredo Lopez. Wilfredo is the legislative director for New York City Council member Ben Kalos of the 5th District in Manhattan. I had the pleasure of interning in Ben Kalos's office last summer and was able to conduct some legislative research for, for Wilfredo. Thank you for joining the pod. No, thank you for having me. Uh, I am honored to be uh, asked to be on as a guest, so thank you. Of course. Um, where are you recording today? Uh, I am in my home office, which is code for my spare bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, maybe just start with the beginning story. Where did you grow up? Um, so I was born in Jersey City, New Jersey, uh, which I have dubbed the sixth borough of, Man- of uh, New York City. Um, I lived there till I was about five years old, at which point my family moved back to Puerto Rico, uh, where I lived until I was a teenager. Uh, and then we moved back to Jersey City, oddly enough, where I stayed until I went to college. So uh, for the most part, you know, grew up in and around the New York City area. Awesome. And uh, were you always politically active when you were younger? Or... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this, the reason I'm laughing is, uh, yes, uh, to put it pure and simple. Yes. Um, when we moved to Puerto Rico, uh, my father was, uh, very heavily involved in Puerto Rican politics. And if, uh, the listeners and you don't know much about Puerto Rico politics, they resemble the machine politics of the 19th century. We're talking like, you know, boss tweed style of politics. So um, from a very young age, I want to say since age of five, um, I was going to political party meetings. I was taking uh, parts uh, in marches. I was uh, canvassing and handing out leaflets. Um, There are photos of me on the shoulders of former uh, gubernatorial candidates for Puerto Rico, former mayors of Puerto Rico. I was essentially the party mascot, um, you know, during the, uh, this would have been the late eighties, uh, early nineties. Um, when we moved back, uh, I got involved in local, uh, politics. I I did some canvassing for, uh, former mayor, uh, Brett Schundler of uh, Jersey city, uh, mainly because his nephew was my classmate, um, in high school. So, but I didn't get as involved as I was or as I am now. Awesome. This is a longer conversation, but the current debate about like DC statehood, but also the ongoing um, debate about the Puerto Rican statehood. But what's, what's your take on that uh, discourse and your, your thoughts on, yeah, the, the debate in general? Yeah. I mean, the, the debate is a complex one. I, you know, I have, altered my my position on it after learning more um growing up 
you know, we were advocates while we were living there for pro-statehood. Um, but, you know, my opinion has shifted more towards uh, sovereignty and uh, really looking for the people of Puerto Rico to actually have uh, a real discussion and, and allow for self-governance uh, or at least self-determination, um, if nothing else. Uh, the last two plebiscite votes that have happened in Puerto Rico on this issue have been uh, marred by boycotts and by disinformation campaigns. So I don't think that the people of Puerto Rico have actually had an opportunity in recent time to actually engage in that uh, in that debate. Um, if it was for me, uh, you know, if, if I was casting a ballot, I would cast a ballot for uh, sovereignty, independence. Um, but I fully believe that the people of Puerto Rico have the you know, should have the opportunity to self-determine. That's all. That's fascinating. Um, and I just want to fast forward just a little bit. Um, so you received your BA in political science from the College of the Holy Cross, and then you got your JD from Pace after working in retail management. What made you decide to pursue a law degree? Because I asked because many kids in college, like me, interested in politics, grapple with that decision post undergrad. So yeah, what led you to, to do that? Yeah, it, it wasn't uh, an easy decision. Um, growing up, I'd always wanted to be an attorney. I always wanted to go to law school, but um, much like the graduates and the people that are entering um, the quote unquote real world today with all these issues, um, you know, financial crisis, obviously the pandemic. Um, when I graduated undergrad, we were just coming out of the dot-com bubble, um, which at that time was one of the worst economic um, recessions of, you know, of my lifetime. Uh, of course, 2008 changed that. Um, but, you know, coming out of that, uh, scenario where just a few years before I graduated in 03, you know, if you graduated with a college degree in political science, you were going to get a nice signing bonus and go work for a think tank, uh, in Washington. And, you know, from there you would go to law school. Well, those opportunities were not there, um, by the time I graduated. So, you know, I took the 10 year road to law school. Um, you know, I graduated in 03 and didn't start law school until the fall of uh, 2014. And during that time, I basically, you know, I took the first good paying job that I found, which was uh, working in retail management. And every time I, you know, I said, uh, said to myself, okay, I'm going to leave this fall and go, go to law school, do this. I'd get promoted or, you know, something would happen. Um, it finally took, uh, you know, a, a real conversation between me and my father who uh, passed away soon after the conversation where he basically said, look, you know, you've been talking about this for a decade. Um, you're not getting any younger. It's kind of like, you know, you've made, you know, you've made some money, you've uh, gone out there, you've become a professional, but if this is something you want, go and get it. So by this point, I'm married, you know, I, I'm, I'm living with my, my wife and I remember coming home and saying, look, I, I think I want to do this. You know, can we afford to, can this be done? And to her credit, she's like, absolutely, let's do it. Uh, later that day, I was signed up for the LSAT. I took the LSAT three months, uh, three months to the day. 
Um, and then that next fall, I was, you know, in law school as a 1L, uh, about 10 years older than my classmates. Um, so to anyone out there who's listening, who's having this debate, the only sage advice I can give you is there's plenty of time. You know, don't feel like you have to rush into it. I can tell you that had I rushed into law school right after undergrad, I probably would not have done as well as I did. And I probably would not have appreciated it. Um, you know, take a, a year or two or more, whatever you feel you need to get that life experience, really get a feel for it and talk to people in the industry, find out if there's something in the law that you want to do. Um, and for me, like, you know, I, I, it clicked for me kind of right away um, but it's not true for everyone. There are people who go to law school and, you know, spend seven years at a firm doing stuff they hate until they finally you know, figure it out. You can figure that out ahead of time and really give yourself, um, the best possible path, uh, to getting your, you know, your dreams. Um, but take your time. There's no rush. Uh, even if you're in your early thirties, there's no rush, um, the law practice isn't going anywhere. That's really good advice. And uh, what was the trajectory or path from your getting your law degree to, um, or yeah, what what did you do after your law degree? And like you obviously now are the legislative director for council member Kalos, but um, yeah, that that path after law school. Yeah. Um, so I debated wanting, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, and I, I thought to myself, well, I definitely want to be, you know, part of public life. Like I, I want to work in public interest. I don't want to be a law firm, uh, attorney. I don't want to worry about billables. So I want to go work, uh, for the public interest. So, um, during my time in law school, I had the pleasure of interning at the U S attorney's office at the Brooklyn DA's office, um, I also did immigration um, defense work, um, and at you know the point of graduation, I had a few opportunities, but I accepted a job with the Brooklyn DA's office. This would have been right at the beginning of the tenure of uh, Eric Gonzalez, the the current DA. Um, for me, representation has always mattered. Um, having an opportunity to work for the for, for the first Puerto Rican district attorney in the country was an honor. Um, and I also saw that at the time, a lot of my views on the criminal justice system reflected the, his views and the views of the office. So immediately after law school, after taking a bar, I went to, to work at that office and spent uh, just under two years there. Uh, what I found very quickly is that Although the views of the office and the views of the DA are important, the practice isn't always, you know, the same as, you know, what the hopes and aspirations are. There is a lot of embedded, um, you know, practices, a lot of uh, bad habits that have to be broken that have been there for forever. So it was frustrating at times being in a progressive office and still not doing progressive things. Um, so I had kind of a change of heart and decided, well, if I want to affect the criminal justice system, if I really want to make my mark on it, perhaps I should look into policy as the way to do that. That's so cool. Um, and kind of a, a follow-up question 
on the council member's website, you identify these three public policy areas that are important to you. And you mentioned criminal justice reform, uh, immigration, but also affordable housing. So what's your what's the story behind these priorities and how does it manifest itself in the work you do as legislative director? Yeah, um, the three issues are inextricably linked um, and they really shouldn't be, but they are. So for criminal justice reform, um, like I said before, you know, I, I grew up in uh, an inner city. Uh, Jersey City had a lot of the same problems um, and continues to have a lot of the same problems that we face here in New York City. It's literally right across the river. Um, so growing up, um, I had firsthand, you know, a first uh, row seat to see the problems with over-policing of communities mm-hmm. Uh, the criminalization of poverty. These are things that affected, you know, my family. It affected my friends, you know, my neighbors, my community uh, from a very young age. Um, With that also came a new wave of immigration that uh, we started to see in the inner cities um, in the early 90s, where for the first time you had um, Latin American Um, South American, and also Eastern European immigration coming into um, community in the city. Um, And for for a lot of those people, they very, you know, they very quickly became part of uh, the the communities they were in, but they always, they didn't always have uh, actual legal status. So seeing that um, their lack of legal status become a conduit for their be their becoming just as involved um, kind of gave rise to my interest in, in the two issues. Uh, a lot of people talk about, you know, crimigration, which is the intersection of criminal law and, and immigration law. And it's really a growing um, area of, of practice for a lot of criminal defense attorneys. Um, I saw that firsthand going to law school. Um, I, I had, like I said, I, I worked a, a, as an immigration defense attorney um, through a clinic that Pace University has under the tutelage of Vanessa Merton. Um, if anyone doesn't know who she is, look her up. She is uh, like a maven of immigration uh, defense. Um, and I got to see even closer dealing with clients, the impacts and the intersectionality between poverty criminal uh, justice involvement and immigration. Um, I had the pleasure of arguing a case at the Second Circuit uh, along with a uh, a colleague um, of mine. Uh, We wrote the briefs. We took the case from, you know, the the immigration court all the way to the second uh, second circuit, which is the second highest court in the land. As a student with a practice order, a very uh, scary prospect. Um, unfortunately, um, we didn't win that case, but, uh, we learned a lot and we ultimately ended up getting a good result for our client. Um, the affordable housing piece, it, it's also closely involved and, and there I saw it from the time I was a kid. You know, I, I grew up in section eight housing. Uh, my parents were on fixed incomes and it seemed that, um, there was always like a line drawn as to where we could live. Um, and it's, that hasn't changed. 
Um, currently in, in New York City, uh, we are in the midst of a huge crisis of affordable housing. The term that's always uh, thrown out is affordable for whom? You know, we have neighborhoods that claim that affordable housing equals a one bedroom apartment that costs three thousand dollars. I don't know about you, but there aren't many, you know, working class families that can afford that. Um, so there is a uh, an over you know, extension of, uh, of these units. Um, you have a lot of gentrification happening because of that. Um, and a lot of these, uh, neighborhoods are losing their, their culture. They're, they're losing their, uh, their cornerstone, which is, you know, the, the actual people in the community. So, um, seeing, you know, all of these things from the scope of, being an attorney and, and working at the DA's office, um, when I came to work for Councilmember Kalos, um, I, I put those front and center. Now, we have done um, a lot of work around affordable housing. Um, we're fighting that fight from the standpoint of zoning, which is actually the uh, purview of the city council. Um, you know, the way the zoning uh, text is written you know, you can pretty much uh, decide where certain buildings are going to be built, um, what that the the use and purpose are for those buildings. Um, and you can do a lot of good if you know how to na- navigate um, the zoning text um, to ensure more affordable housing. On the same hand, you're also dealing with one of the most important special interests and one of the most powerful special interests in New York, which is big real estate. Uh, the real estate developers, um, you know, they're not all bad, but, you know, a lot of bad policies have been born through their efforts um, and they have a lot of influence in city politics. So you're, you're always battling that. Um, we've also done work on criminal justice reform, obviously, you know, with everything that's been happening recently with the budget, you've seen a lot of the fruits of that. Um, we, we fought for the Eric Garner uh, ban on chokeholds. We've fought for additional transparency from the NYPD. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the real uh, efforts that need to happen need to come from the state. But we work with our state partners all the time to make sure that our, uh, you know, our, our thumbprints are on, you know, on that legislation as it's moving forward. And on immigration, a lot of that is federal. But, you know, we have been supportive of making New York City um, a, um, an open and inclusive place for uh, residents, regardless of your legal background or your uh, legal status. Um, we've worked towards, you know, ensuring that language access is available to all our new immigrants um, when, when they come here. Uh, we're, you know, we've worked hard on uh, the New York City ID and making sure the New York mm-hmm. City ID is available for everyone as a legal form of ID. And most recently, we advocated for the passing of the um, the bill at the state to allow for non-citizen immigrants to have um, rights to to drive, uh, to, to get a driver's license. Um, so I've been able to uh, work on all three issues at, from a city level. Um, but, uh, as we move and look forward, I'm looking forward to adding, you know, some additional, uh, priorities to that, especially around the, uh, criminal justice and defund PD, uh, reform. That's so awesome. And I, uh, I think it's a great transition into like 
getting an overview of the city council. I like this anecdote from my time as an intern in the office. I remember I, I tabled an event. Uh, it was like the first thing I, I did for the council member and uh, it was at Carl Schurl's Park, I think. And uh, mm-hmm. I this guy came up to the table and basically said like, like, what are you doing here? Or like, what, who's Ben Kalos? And I explained he's a New York City Council member and he didn't even know what the New York City Council was. Uh, and it speaks to a larger uh, kind of civic education gap and people not knowing what's going on with local politics. So if you can give like a basic rundown of what the city council does, maybe like how many members are there, like Dems versus Republican and its role and its interaction with the mayor, mayor's office. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're absolutely right. There is a a definite gap in uh, civics, uh, civic education. We don't teach it in schools anymore, which is baffling to me. Um, but the city council is the legislative body for the city of New York. Um, it has taken several different, um, it's looked differently throughout the years. Um, but since 1989, uh, the, the makeup has been pretty much the same. So there are 51 council districts. Uh, the districts are broken up by population. Each uh, member uh, has approximately about 168,000 constituents in their, in their borders. Um, the districts are redrawn um, approximately every, uh, you know, every decade. Um, the next redistricting is going to happen uh, next year. Um, they're just waiting on the census um, to, uh, to finish. Um, but essentially, well, right now, let me just back up a little bit. There are currently 50 active council members. Uh, the 51st, um, uh, who was Rafael Espinal. He, uh, he's the, he was a member from East New York and Brooklyn. Um, he stepped down earlier this year and because of the pandemic, they haven't been able to fill that seat through a special election. Uh, so the seat's going to re- remain vacant until the general election in November. Um, but the current makeup is you have, uh, three Republicans and, uh, currently 47 Democrats. It was 48 to three. Um, however, there are about 10 or so, uh, Democrats who will typically caucus with the Republicans. Um, but still there is an overwhelming majority of, uh, Democrats in the, um, in the chamber. Now, within that uh, democratic makeup, you have a few different caucuses. Um, the largest is the uh, Black, Latino, and Asian Caucus, or BLAC. Um, and then the second largest being the Progressive Caucus, which currently sits at 22 members. Councilmember Kalos is one of the co-chairs of the Progressive Caucus. Um, so, the role of the city council is essentially to, you know, make legislation, uh, to uh, provide um, opinions and context uh, when it comes to land use matters. That's really where the major power of the city council lies. Uh, but the way the New York City Charter, which is the governing document, is written, a lot of power resides with the mayor. So uh, the mayor does have almost unilateral spending power. The council advises and provides for a budget, 
Um, but ultimately, the mayor is who decides how that money is spent. And there are issues of um, the council and their ability to curtail that spending power, which is often, you know, debated and litigated back and forth with the mayor's office. So the, the mayor in New York City does have a lot of power, um, but the real power of the council, other than land use, really comes from the bully pulpit that's created. Um, the council speaker, who is the leader of the, the city council, the current speaker is uh, Corey Johnson. Uh, he represents um, the Midtown Hell's Kitchen area of, New York, of Manhattan. Um, the speaker is elected by the, the city council, and the speaker has a lot of power um, through his or her voice to really uh, put pressure on the uh, on the mayor. Um, whenever the mayor in, enacts or uh, you know pushes for some sort of policy that is uh, contradicts anything that the council's doing. Um, the, the speaker will make sure that, uh, the, you know, the, the media, uh, is aware and the public is aware and there's a, um, a nice balance, uh, that, that is achieved, um, especially with this mayor who's had some, some issues with gaining popularity or, uh, you know, or I should say, uh, getting, uh, backing for a lot of, uh, his policies, um, he relies on the council to, you know, kind of help him elevate some policy points and get some real traction. So that's kind of how it's uh, broken up. Um, it's a real interesting uh, dynamic uh, between the mayor and the council. Um, it, it, there are a lot of books written on, on the subject, uh, but uh, it's it's definitely pretty interesting when you're looking at it from a you know legislative standpoint. Um, the, the, the powers that the mayor has that the council is always trying to chip away at and vice versa. But, uh, as of right now, the mayor does have, uh, an incredible amount of power. Um, and unless a new mayor comes in with the vision to balance that, um, there really is no remedy for That's that. That's fascinating. Cause I, I kind of a, a wonky follow-up question, but I know like in the U.S. House of Representatives, the the Speaker, uh, Nancy Pelosi, or any of the, whoever holds that position, like currently has sort of the consolidated power in the chambers, but it used to be uh, in, like it used to lie in committees. And I learned, I took a Congress class last semester, and I learned that that power access shifts uh, over the years, depending on who's in leadership, is there a, like a similar dynamic in the city council? Like, does Corey Johnson hold a lot of power over his like caucus, or does it more lie in the in the committees uh, that the members serve on, or is maybe that doesn't even exist in the city council? Um, it's it, it's changed. Um, there was a time when the speaker had almost un like unimaginable power. Uh, because uh, right up until 2015, 2016, uh, the speaker was able to give out additional monies uh, in the form of something that's called a Lulu. Um, it's, basi- it's basically a legal bribe. <laughs> so um, if you, if the council, if the speaker wanted to give 
more uh, or wanted to get um, support from a, sp- a specific member, the speaker had the ability to give them money or a committee or money for running a committee on top of their pay, on top of their uh, their budget in order to get that support. Um, Council member Kalos actually wrote a bill um, that got passed um, to eliminate that. So that somewhat diminished the power of the speaker, but the speaker's power is still very, very strong. Um, the, pen, the, the, the three most powerful uh, committees at council are the land use committee, um, the finance committee, and then it's like a close tie between education and transportation. Um, but education has a little bit more um, uh, power in terms of being able to generate press. Uh, the finance committee, obviously, they determine the budget. Uh, the members that sit on that committee um, are typically also members of the budget negotiations team. Um, so that brings power on its own. And then land use, um, the ability to dictate um, and vote on land use matters that get brought be, uh, in front of the whole chamber um, is really where the most power lies in the city council. Um, a lot of times in the negotiation for who's going to be the next speaker, um, those committees typically go to uh, members who can either bring their collective borough to the table to vote for a speaker or um, individual, you know, members who have a lot of influence to, to help whoever the speaker candidate is become speaker. In the case of the land use committee, uh, currently it's Rafael Salamanca. And obviously the Bronx was pivotal in Corey Johnson's election as mm-hmm. speaker. Um, so a lot of these, uh, you know, these committees end up going to people who have influence already, um, but this just kind of elevates them and gives them, um, you know, more influence within the chamber. That's really interesting. Uh, and I want to zoom in on the fifth district. I think it's a really interesting yeah. mix of neighborhoods. So it covers some of the Upper East Side, uh, East Harlem, uh, also Roosevelt Island. And I was curious, can I know, uh, on First Avenue is a NYCHA housing property. I think it's the John Haynes Homes. Um, or... uh, no, it, yeah, it's it's, the, it's Homes, and then you have Stanley oh, okay. Isaacs yeah, right next to each it. other. Yeah, so that's yeah. – um, I, I personally, like, my my time at as an intern uh, really opened my eyes to the public – like, affordable housing, public housing policy area and those issues in NYCHA, and that's uh, what I'm focusing on now with – some research for Sean Donovan, who's running for mayor. Um, and I just, I was curious about how does the diversity and also the inequities in the district play out within council member Ben Kalos's policy agenda and how he addresses these different constituencies. Um, well, when we are, when we look at policy issues, we look at them from the bottom up, um, you know, any, Anytime we're looking at any policy, we obviously look at it from the lens of will this help people across the city? Um, And then you slowly walk that up to, okay, if it helps everyone in the city, what impact will that have on our Hmm. district? Um, So we're always looking at it from a a kind of a a broader sense as opposed to looking at it from top Hmm. down. Um, the, The makeup, I mean, the, the, 
supermajority, um, I think, according to the last census, um, is that most of District 5, uh, I believe somewhere in the 77, 78%, uh, identifies it as white, um, and obviously within that there are other sub, you know, subsects. Um, the second largest um, ethnic makeup uh, is actually Asian American uh, across a very a very number of nationalities, um, which a lot of people don't uh, don't associate um, our district uh, with Asian Americans, but there are um, you know it's a healthy number. Um, then after that, it's about a. Uh, almost equal breakup of uh, Latinos or uh, Hispanic identifying individuals. And then obviously uh, folks who identify as black or, um, or African-American. Um, we are fighting the same fights that the rest of the city's fighting. We want more affordable housing. We obviously want education equity. One of the biggest fights we currently face in terms of education equity is uh, segregation of schools. Our schools now in uh, Manhattan, especially, are more segregated than they were in the time of Brown, you know, time before Brown v. Board wow. of Education. And it's not because of any specific policy issue. It's just because of um, the fact that our neighborhoods are segregated uh, due to uh, socioeconomic um, segregation that occurs. Uh, those three thousand dollar affordable, you know, housing apartments, you know, not affordable to the majority of you know people identifying as black or Latino um, in our in our city. Um, so that's why when you look at it, um, the segregation occurs. So we're trying to do what we can to break some of those um, systemic issues um, and really expand. Uh, the diversity that that we celebrate in our city. I mean, everyone talks about New York being the yeah. most diverse city in the world, but yet we also have one of the most segregated school systems. So when we're dealing with that, especially in District 5, we're always looking at, does this policy help us achieve additional integration? Uh, does this help, um, you know, increase the number of seats that we have um, in our schools in order to allow for more, uh, you know, more children from different diverse socioeconomic backgrounds to come into our, to come into our schools. Uh, we're always working with, uh, you know, public part, uh, sorry, private partners who want to build things in our district. And we're like, okay, give us additional community space, you know, uh, help us uh, develop programs that will bring, you know, kids in from uh, north of 96th street, which is kind of the, the borderline of East Harlem um, and the Upper East Side, what can we do to bring kids in to, you know, to more programming, um, have more uh, lower price or free programming available uh, for, for kids who don't have the means? And with our NYCHA developments, we have three. We have Holmes, we have Isaacs, and then on 99th Street, we also have Lexington Houses. Um, we're always looking at what we can do to provide more funding, whether it be through our capital expense, our discretionary funding, um, to help bring more programming and to do more um, for the constituents that live there because they're part of this community just as much as uh, some of the millionaires and billionaires that live here. In fact, some of them have lived here longer than, than, uh, than anyone else. 
So they're, uh, they're, they're the bedrock of, of this community. Um, so we're always looking for ways to uh, do more um, and, you know, have them have a voice. Um, one of the things we're proud of is we've been able to diversify our local community board. Uh, we, we have local community board eight. And for those of you that don't know, community boards are volunteer organizations. They're appointed by your local council member, as well as your, uh, borough president. And they essentially have, uh, the pulse of what's happening in the neighborhoods. They communicate, um, these issues up and they do everything by committee. Uh, for a long time, you know, we had a, a predominantly older white community board, um, which, so you know, it, it, it met the, uh, the requirements of the people that were living there, but we weren't looking for the, you know, the, uh, to diversify that. Um, and since Councilmember Kalos uh, came into office, um, he's done more to increase the diversity. So we actively look for uh, people who are high school aged through college. So we're always looking for uh, younger members. We're always looking for members from our NYCHA development, um, members who are from labor unions, uh, who are working class individuals. So we've done a lot to um, increase the diversity. And by doing that, the policies that come out of those community boards have shifted. So we're no longer looking at what's good for uh, Sutton Place or what's good for you know Carnegie Hill. We're looking at what's the best possible uh, scenario that helps the widest number of people in uh, District 5. That's really interesting. I, I, I remember uh, hearing a lot about the community board eight and some uh, like constantly hearing in like in the office and, and looking it up and learning about the, the citizen interactions with policy. And that was really interesting. Um, and similar to, to housing, um, a moratorium ended on evictions in New York City and many fear that they'll be called into housing court. So what's the latest on evictions during COVID in New York City? So currently, um, there was still a pause. Um, we've been working with um, the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys. They're the uh, union that represents legal aid attorneys and other public defenders in New York City. Um, yesterday, we were at a rally with them. Um, the big issue is that the, um, the governing body for the courts um, has decided almost on their own that they're going to reopen courts, uh, both criminal courts and housing courts, uh, starting next week. Obviously, this is uh, of great concern because, um, you know, this will this will create um, kind of an unsafe uh, environment for the class of people that have been impacted the most by COVID-19. Um, you know, the overwhelming majority of uh, criminally or justice involved individuals tend to be uh, from black and brown predominant neighborhoods. Um, same thing goes for housing court uh, litigation. The, you know, the majority of people that are involved in housing court are also from black and brown communities. So this it's not like the courts have just completely shut down. 
um, emergency matters, uh, both in housing court and also in within the criminal justice system, have continued. If someone gets arrested on a criminal matter, they still get arraigned within 24 hours. All the arraignments are happening virtually. Um, and a lot of cases that have, um, you know, important implications or are time sensitive have still gone forward. Um, same thing with housing. Um, our office is currently supporting um, uh, litigations happening with uh the Homes and Isaacs uh, coalition against the city uh, because of unsafe conditions. That case has continued because a lot of those issues are emergency issues. Um, what we're really trying to do is stop the evictions process because um, by some estimates, uh, there are over 120,000 eviction cases that are looming that are going to be coming up uh, because you know, a lot of people can't pay their rent. Um, the federal government has completely uh, shut us out from getting any money. We have a stimulus package, the HEROES Act, which is currently sitting on <laughs> um, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell's desk uh, and has not been moved. Um, and in order for the city to be able to uh, provide um you know, relief for homeowners, for building owners, for landlords, they need to provide relief for the tenants. The tenants are the ones that are most vulnerable and have the least amount of power um, and typically need the most. So, you know, right now we're working with um, the legal aid attorneys to figure out a way to um, work with the state to keep the courts closed. Um, and we're also you know, lobbying, and I use the word lobby in the sense of uh, general. generally, we're basically working through our state partners and the governor's office to push for an extension on the moratorium. Uh, the city council has some powers in this. Um, the speaker had a bill that would push out uh, evictions in New York City um, until spring of 2021. However, there were some issues as to how that was going to conflict with state law. So we really need the state to step in. And the good news is they're still in session. Typically, the state shuts down after the budget. Um, June, uh, you know, early to mid-June, they usually shut down. Um, but they're continuing. They're actually in session today. Um, they're not hearing any of the proposed legislation that would solve this. But they're still docketed and there's still hopes that, you know, in the next week or two, the state will pick up this agenda and really um, push forward. But ultimately, we need federal and we need state help on this. Uh, so stay tuned. It's going to be an interesting uh, couple of weeks uh, as this continues to develop. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, God, Mitch McConnell, he's, his, his desk is full of such uh... – <laughs> Policies and bills that can actually help people, but hopefully, uh, Amy McGrath can beat him. But uh, so, what's uh, before getting into the fight against police brutality and, and also racial fight against racial injustice? Um, I was curious about your take on the exciting 2021 election year coming up in New York and uh, in, in the mayor race, and if you have a front runner or if you have a favorite candidate, or and who do you think the front runner is? Um, 
it's funny on the mayor's race um it's like every every week uh it changes uh prior to the budget um i think a lot of people would have been in agreement that um it was going to be a a close race between uh you know eric adams Corey johnson and scott stringer um since the budget um you're hearing less and less about Corey Johnson, um, considering that he's still taking a lot of um, flack, and uh, he's been, you know, a lot of people finding him responsible for the uh, the terrible budget we we passed. Um, in terms of Scott Stringer, you know, he's been relevant. He's been in the discussions, but I just haven't seen his campaign really take traction. And every time Eric Adams has a good headline, it's usually followed up by something that happens that, um, you know, detracts from it. So, you know, it, it's difficult to say, you know, I'm interested in seeing um, some of these newer candidates. Uh, Diana Morales has, you know, uh, been doing a lot of uh, groundwork, um, her mutual aid uh, platform and grassroots um work has been interesting um, during COVID. I, I don't think she would have been in the conversation as much if COVID had not happened. Um, and Sean Donovan, I mean, to his credit, I mean, he came in pretty strong um, this last filing. Um, I had not followed that, uh, you know, any of his um, pre-filing news and then saw him drop a, a significant number um, and of course, you know, Sean comes from the Obama administration, so that lends a lot of credibility to, to folks. Um, there's a joke amongst political operatives that you're either from the Obama campaign or you're not. Um, so it's like everyone's like, if you worked with, you know, through Obama, you're, yeah, I was, I'm associated with Obama and everyone has like a similar photo to show. Um, but, you know, I, I'd be interested to see in what happens in terms of front runners. I guess it, it's up to, um, you know, what's happening in, in that moment in time. I think that conversation will continue right. to shift. Um, there's still a lot of rumors uh, for other people that may jump into this race. Um, obviously, you know, there's always the Andrew Yang uh, conspiracy. Um, you know, I've heard people talk about, uh, you know, people like AOC jumping into it. Yeah. I doubt that's going to happen. I hope it doesn't happen for, you know, for yeah. her sake. Um, but it's going to be interesting. You know, I, I, I would not be able to choose a front runner right now because yeah. ranked choice yeah. voting is going to make it very interesting. And, uh, you know, you're kind of like trying to pick, uh, one through five or one through six right now with the number of, uh, candidates, it's going to come down to kind of a game time decision. So I'm interested in seeing what yeah. happens. Uh, I, I heard, um, Maya Wiley might, might, uh, enter too, but I wasn't sure. I heard a rumor. Another Obama, a former yeah. Obama uh, person. Uh, and also, you know, Maya uh, was very involved in the de Blasio administration early on. And uh, I think right up until like a year or two ago, um, her name is constantly associated with people um, who are seen as being very progressive. Um, I'm wondering if any of the negativity that flows from the de Blasio administration will be um, put on her. Um, I hope not. I like to give everyone a clean slate. Um, but it'd be interesting. You know, the one important thing is that we have a very diverse pool of mayoral, mayoral yeah. candidates. 
um, you know, more so than in my lifetime. Um, so I'm interested in see um, what happens. Um, but either way, I, I think we get, um, we're going to elect a very progressive mayor. It's just depending on what your definition of yeah. progressive yeah. is. Um, but it's, uh, it's an exciting time. And the same goes true for, you know, the, the council races. Uh, there's a, there are a lot of great candidates out there. Um, this is one of the most wide open fields, um, in recent memory. Uh, so we'll see. It's going to yeah, be really fun. Exciting. And, uh, yeah, so in my, my previous episode, I spoke with Ramon Contreras, who's a, like a leading gun violence prevention activist uh, and uh, very involved with March for Our Lives. And so I, I got the activist perspective on the defund the police movement. But what does it look like from a policy side in City Hall? You talked about it briefly, but going into those details. So I'm probably a bad person to speak to about this only because my views on the personal level reflect Ramon's uh, views. I, I know Ramon, I know uh, the work um, he's done. Um, but uh, during the budget process, um, there were a lot of questions as to defund NYPD. Um, and a lot of council members struggled right up until the very end to decide um, what to do. Um, one of the things that our office did prior to the vote is we wrote a, a letter to the mayor, uh, which we also publicized, um, showing that there are different places from the budget where we can cut. And we ended up finding approximately $15 billion in cuts um, that could be made um, and reinvested. Now, for those of you out there, 15 billion sounds like a lot, but the city's budget last year was uh, almost 96 billion. Um, the proposed budget this year initially was about 89 billion. Uh, the, uh, the adopted budget is about 88.1 uh, billion. And activists were really calling for, you know, at least $1 billion cut from the NYPD's budget and reinvested into communities and programming um, that deals with affected communities of over-policing. Um, our letter was not well received by the administration uh, because a lot of the cuts that we were calling for um, are considered uh, sweetheart uh, deals. Uh, we were calling for a cut to our, you know, our ties with Fortune 500 companies like Northrop Grumman and you know Apple, who we have these ridiculously large uh, contracts with, which are over already over budget. Um, to manage things like the city's Wi-Fi network, which has failed again and again. Um, we would like to see that money invested in, you know, technology that's going to work and it's going to be, you know, scaled and you're going to be able to actually access um, as opposed to just giving it to a defense contractor. Um, we were looking at different ways to find efficiencies in, in the education budget. Um, and on top of that, we were finding, you know, cuts to be made to the, uh, to the NYPD. Um, but, you know, unfortunately the budget deal that was reached, um, came well short of that. The council and the mayor agreed on a budget that looked to, um, move money around as opposed to actually making yeah. cuts, if people are wondering what type of cuts were being um, offered, 
Um, there, there's a website out here that's uh, that was made by um, by policy wonks. It's called Abolish NYPD, and it has a breakdown of all the proposed cuts that could have been made to get to more than a billion in cuts. Um, you know, they the people behind that reached out to our office. We worked with them to ensure that their math was solid, and, and it was. Um, in terms of you know the cuts, the supposed cuts that were made, the most, um, the the two most controversial were moving school safety officers out of uh, the NYPD and moving them back to the DOE. The issue uh, that issue actually goes back to the 1990s, where Giuliani initially moved um, the school safety officers from the DOE to the NYPD. And uh, this New York Times article from like 1999, where the same proponents arguing against that move now were the same people arguing for that against that move mm-hmm. back then. So there's a lot of talking from both sides uh, on this issue that only would save about 327 million. But what we found out after is that it's a two-year uh, project to move all those uh, workers back to the DOE. So it's not effectively a cut for this year. Um, the second biggest cut was to police overtime. Now, just in the first two weeks of June, from June 1st to June 15th, the Independent Budget Office estimated that the NYPD spent $115 million in overtime. And that was because of the, uh, protest, the, the Black Lives Matter protests the protests for uh, for George Floyd and the budget protests. So the city was somehow planning on cutting 420 some odd million dollars from the overtime budget, but they had already overspent for the, in 15 days by 115 million. You can't control the over the overspending of the NYPD as long as the NYPD is the agency responsible for maintaining the overtime. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is it's like telling you like, hey, don't overspend on my Amex black card. But by the way, you get to hold it and you're responsible for it and you're the one who is managing it. Like you, you're not going to self-impose yeah. a budget on yourself unless you have someone looking over you to do so. And right now, the city's ability to curb um, NYPD spending is incredibly limited. Um, everyone talks about the $5.9 billion budget that the NYPD had last year. But when you take their uh, fringe benefits, the pension benefits, uh, their capital expenses, their budget is actually closer to $11 billion. Um, and only $5.9 billion out of that $11 billion is actually something that the city manages. So it was a, a foolhardy uh, budget Um I applaud the members that voted against it, Ben Kalos being one of them, um, you know, because they they took a stand and said, you know what, enough is enough. There's ample room to make cuts here without sacrificing safety, without sacrificing um, one single officer that's currently deployed. Um, we can do this in a smart and efficient way, but the mayor um, and to some extent the city council refused to look uh, beyond that. Uh, so it was unfortunate. There, This conversation is not over. Um, there's one more budget left before this uh, council is done. 
Um, and I don't think that this problem is going to go away. I think that if anything, people are just going to get more informed and start a lot earlier in the process. And one last follow-up question about this. Um, what would those reinvestments look like specifically in communities that are mostly affected by uh, police brutality and over-policing? Yeah. The biggest uh, investment that can be made is access to jobs, especially for uh, children age 16 through 24. When you look at the justice-involved uh, individuals, they typically have their first interactions um, you know, at, at around 16 years old. Some sooner, but for the, for the majority, and I'm speaking in generalities, I'm not citing uh, studies, but um, anecdotally, when you look at it, the, that's around the time when you start to see real justice involvement. Um, what the experts, and these experts are both academics and also the people on the street doing this work, will tell you that when children have something to do that's positive, that has some sort of benefit, um, that takes them away from the streets, they're less likely to be involved with the justice system. Um, so a program that uh, does not get enough uh, support, both financially and also in terms of accolades, is the, the Summer Youth Employment Program, or SYEP. Um, in March and April, when the first round of budget cuts were proposed, that was the first place that the mayor decided to cut. Um, the program doesn't cost a lot. In order to provide approximately 70,000 uh, children in that, in that you know, age bracket uh, summer jobs, um, it costs the city approximately about $192 million. That's a drop in a bucket on a $92 billion or even an $87 billion budget. Um, that was the first thing that was cut. Um, and a lot of these programs are managed by non-for-profit organizations. And that's not just all they do. That's part of it. And they provide other services. Once the kids are involved in summer youth employment, you know, their families are involved in other programming, whether it be adult literacy, whether it be food pantries, whether it be counseling, mental health. You know, there are so many different um, wraparound services that come around this, not to mention the poorest of the poor, New Yorkers, the families rely and continue to rely on summer youth employment money to offset the costs of, you know, of their families. A lot of kids bring this money home and they're not using it to buy a PlayStation and they're using it to help feed their, their families mm -hmm. over the summer. Um, so cutting that program is, you know, if you want to, if you want a direct correlation uh, between the rise in gun crime in the in neighborhoods um, like East Harlem, Central Harlem, South Bronx, uh, Southeast Queens, look at the correlation between the lack of summer employment and gun, wow, and gun so violence. There's a direct correlation there. Um, and, you know, the people on the street will tell you, if you want to stop gun crime, give these kids something else to do. Um, these kids are not bad. They're not bad kids. But when there's no supervision, when there's nothing else to do, Unfortunately, the, the worst elements of, of nature take root and you end up with a lot of this, um, this uh, violence. Uh, you also have high unemployment amongst adults, 18% unemployment in, 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 in across New York City. In some of these neighborhoods, is as high as 30%. Wow. 
Um, and what, you know, what are these adults doing, you know, when there's nothing else to do that all also lends into it. So when we're talking about reinvesting, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about taking the money away from the NYPD, which has plenty of money already and investing another 190 million for some of youth for 70,000 kids. It might be expanding it a couple of million dollars more to, to capture more kids. Um, taking additional money and creating jobs through the city. Um, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, feeding everyone, you know, three meals a day and, and living in a, a complete welfare state. We're talking about creating opportunities for people to work. Um, and the city should be the largest employer of the community. That's just like, I, I think that that's the best case scenario because right now the, the private sector is hurting. They need investment as well. But if we don't invest in our communities first, there won't be any, you know, any consumers left for the, you know, for, for private business. So that's what we're talking about in terms of reinvesting. That's such a good answer. I think that's um, like when I hear reinvestments, I haven't done, I should do more research for myself, but that's like such a good, good example. I think for many people who um, don't understand the defund the police argument uh, or, or against it, I think that's, it's just so rational it's needed um i remember i think i inter helped a constituent um trying to figure out her son's syep um information i remember last summer and i i i remember learning about that program i think that's just it's such a good answer i mean that that i learned a lot yeah. about that just now um so my to conclude uh i asked this question to every guest but what does patriotism mean to you you know that's a tough question for me as a Puerto Rican, um, because um, when I think about my, you know, love of my country, I have to think about it in terms of love of the country I grew up in and look at it at the lens of what my country has done to Puerto Rico. And it's, it's a conflicting answer, but I guess the shortest way I can um, answer it is, Patriotism means loving your country, but it does not mean loving unconditionally. You have to question uh, what your country and um, what your government is doing. Um, and you have to be actively involved in shaping the, um, the vision and shaping the narrative of what you want your country to be. There is no perfect country out there. Every country has um, sins of the past that they're paying for. Um, you can love your country, but also question and push it to be the best country it can be. That's, all, that's a really good answer. Um, thank you so much, Wilfredo. This is, that was an amazing conversation. No, thank you so much. Uh, again, I am honored to, uh, to, to be asked to do this. Uh, it's not every day that uh, policy wonks uh, get a chance to, to talk about a lot of these issues. Um, you know, for those of you out there that don't know, uh, <laughs> um, Henry was an amazing uh, intern. Um, you know, for those of you out there looking for people to work in policy and, and to do this, Henry is a great candidate. And I'm not just saying that because he paid me because he didn't pay me. <laughs> um, I'm saying that because uh, he was actually a very good, um, a very good intern. And we are uh, excited to see what he's doing and uh, excited to see the what the future holds for Thank him. You. So thank, thank you so you. much. That means a lot to me.